0: Well, you may have seen online, our um, lead pastor, Andrew, is laid up with um, surgery on ligaments and bones. He broke a couple of bones um, playing volleyball. Uh, Volleyball is a dangerous sport when you get to be not 20. Um, Who knew? We're finding this out. We don't rebound the same way. But the Lord had already lined it up that our friend Alyssa would be speaking today. And so this is Alyssa Reed. She's on staff at the InterVarsity and a blessing to our body, and we bless you as you share with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning, church family. Good morning, those to you who are online. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Alyssa Reed, and I have the privilege of serving our college students here at Neighborhood Church by serving our campus at Chico State and Butte College through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So, so excited to be with you this morning. And 2020 was a wild year, so some of you might be at some of your first church services in person, so welcome. Uh, 2020 was actually a year of celebration for me uh, and our family. After eight and a half years of, of trying and waiting and praying, we got pregnant the day after Mother's Day last year, and so there's a few photos of our last year and snapshots of this early year. Um, we got pregnant in May. We, um, we had Elena Esperanza uh, on January 8th. She just turned four months yesterday. She'll be dedicated at the end of this service, and we are so excited. Um, her name means shining light of hope, and that's what she has been for us and so many people in the room. Um, and with that, I just want to say that it is Mother's Day. And so there's a lot of feelings that can be coming up for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mamas and grandmas and spiritual mamas, adoptive and foster mamas, um, mamas who have lost someone, and mamas who are still waiting to meet someone. Um, all the mamas and women in the room, you are seen and welcomed in this place today. I remember that for many, many Mother's Days, it was really painful to show up to church. Some of you online might have just felt like it would be easier for me to stay home than it is to go to church right now. Um, and so I just want to say that it, is, it can be a hard day to celebrate. You might be estranged relationships with your maternal figures in your life or with your daughters. Uh, You might have lost someone this last year of a maternal nature, um, and you might still be grieving that. And so we just wanted to give space for you to be here in this place today, that you can come as you are and know that you are loved and cared for and seen by our Heavenly Father. And that you are more than your fertility, your marital status, and your family relationships. That you are worthy and seen as God's child. And so there is something I hope that we all can enter into uh, with this scripture today. So with that, I want to jump into this idea of the underdog story. Everybody loves an underdog story, right? That story of that small character who encountered something tragic, who has to then go and fight against all odds to achieve their victory. We can probably think of many, many types of underdog stories. And what I'm actually going to do is we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're going to get a little bit more interactive with each other and less with a screen or me right now. And we're actually going to, if you feel comfortable, turn to the person next to you or someone who's nearby. Introduce yourself if you don't know them. And just share, what is an underdog story that you appreciate? And why does it matter to you? So I'm gonna give you some minutes. It will be quiet up here. You will be talking and then I will bring us back in a few minutes for you to share those out loud with me. So go ahead and turn to the person next to you. What's a favorite underdog story and why? All right, we're gonna start bringing it back. Let's go ahead and wrap up your last thoughts. I want to hear from some of you who are in the house. Uh, Go ahead and start shouting out some of those underdog stories you love. Braveheart, I heard that. That was a quiet whisper, but I, I agree. Braveheart is a great story for the underdog. The Secretariat, yes. Everyone loves a good horse race movie. Let's go. The Underdog is a movie? Oh, a kid's movie. Great, love it. I did not have a very, like, large breadth to go for. So, kid's movies, that's awesome. David and Goliath, yeah, that's totally one of the underdog stories from scripture. I love that one. Never back down. Never back down. Not heard of that one, but I love it. Great. I'm sure it's a very good underdog story. Any, um, I'm not trying to push any sort of agenda. I was just having a hard time figuring out some female underdog stories. Did anyone get one of those? Cinderella. Cinderella. Great. That's a good good, uh, underdog story. Mulan. Oh, I'm talking about Milan, yes. Ruth, awesome, love it, great. Look at this. Okay, good. So I'm going to share with you a few of my favorites, because I got Jean Valjean up there from Les Mis. I have Frodo from Lord of the Rings. I have Mulan. Um, I have Remember the Titans. That was the soundtrack of my summers for about 10 years. Still such a great soundtrack. Um, Harry Potter, of course. Some of you might have felt unsure of whether or not you could say that. Um, And then for comedic effect, I was like, Legally Blonde. Elle Woods, man. No one thought she could handle it at Harvard. And then she solves a murder case no one chemicals. So anything can happen for the underdog and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning because as we have been going through the story of Lessons from the Kings, we've seen the story of Samuel. We're going to go back to his origin story Um, and what I love about the underdog story is that they have encountered something uh, tragic and you have just like want to will for them to fight for them to see their victory right and it's because of their good character because of their moral uprightness that you feel like you can even cheer for them you might consider other antagonists the villains of some of these stories that you might have shared some of those might have been underdogs as well if you think about batman and the joker right the joker has a really sad past according to this new movie i never watched but you might have watched and might have felt sympathy for him but you can't get on board with his underdog story because he has Diverted from goodness and righteousness and true justice and sought his own revenge, right? So there's something about the character of an underdog story that makes us want to fight for them. And so, uh, yes, yeah, so we've been going through the story of the lessons of the three kings, and we want to figure out what is Samuel's origin story. So normally this would have been the first in our series, but Pastor Andrew really wanted this to be preached on Mother's Day, so that's why we're here now, and I'm really excited. So, we're going to be talking about what I believe is a really beautiful underdog story in the story of Samuel's mother, Hannah. And this is a very near and dear story to me as we have just ventured out of a season of eight and a half years of barrenness. And so, this passage has been very important to me. So, just a little bit of context Samuel, our great prophet who anoints both King Saul and King David comes from um, this woman named Hannah, who was originally a barren wife of a Levite Israelite from the lands of Ephraim. So this is a map of the lands of Ephraim, would have been one of the divisions from Israel. And um, you can see in red the two cities that we're going to be talking about. Rama is the shortened version of the Ram- Ramathaim Zophim, or whatever it is. I don't know how to say it. And Shiloh. And those two cities are where we are taking place. Shiloh is the city of like the holy kind of city for them. It houses their tabernacle, so their place of worship, which would have had the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's Rod, a few different significant spiritual aspects. And it's housed, the tabernacle is housed in Shiloh for 369 years. So this is the first permanent residence of the tabernacle. Uh, Obviously it has to move and things get conquered and you move into the new place and so it's the first of the few permanent residences. It's also about 15 miles from this Ramathayim Zophim or Rama for short and that would have been a two-day journey for families in that day and age and so as you're thinking about your drive home Today, it might be less than 15 miles, and it might take you, and it should take you, much less than two days to get home. So just think about the next time you're like, do I want to get up and go to church today? It would have taken families two days to get to church. And they would have done this many, many times a year for their sacrifices and celebrations. So, what I also love is that this narrative is the only recorded instance in the scriptures where a person is praying in the place where sacrifices are are offered. So those would have been normally two different locations. There's a place of worship and there's a place of sacrifice. But this story helps the rabbinic teaching, the ancient Jewish teachings, that there is a continuity, there is a marriage, there is a connection between our worship and our sacrifices. That it actually helps affirm their, their idea that rites and rituals and liturgies go together. So I just love that the story of Hannah has just like such a profound reach into the teachings of like our brothers and sisters, of the Jewish faith, but also in our faith. So we're going to get into some of those little tidbits that I was nerding out about this week. And um, but I'll scatter those out as we go through the scripture. This story takes place in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And because it's such a large chunk of text, we're just going to zoom in on some moments of the story, and we're going to allow those to shape us. If we are doing anything with the Word and it is not shaping us, then we're probably not doing it right, because the goal of Scripture is to shape us. So I pray that this morning that we all feel shaped by Scripture, and for us to just sit and marinate in what the Lord is, is saying. So here is our introduction. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. So the kickoff of our story is a genealogical breakdown of our patriarch, Elkanah, And it ends with these two sentences about his marital status. And it says that he has two wives. It lists Hannah first, which most likely insinuates to us that he married Hannah first, and then he marries Peninnah later. And we can see from this last part of the verse probably the reason why. Now, in ancient Jewish agrarian cultures, they would have allowed, I use that very loosely, they would have allowed for polygamous relationships for a number of reasons, one of them being that the maternal mortality rate was just so high that they needed to have multiple wives in case someone died. One of them would have been if there were more women than men in that current, like, gathering, and it was actually safer and better for a woman to be a multiple wife than it was to be an unmarried, unprotected woman. It's very sad. Third, a lot of these people own ranches. They've got lots of land they've got to take care of. And how do you work the land? You get laborers. What's the easiest way to get laborers? You have kids. And so if you have multiple wives, you can have lots of kids and they can all work the field for you. The last one, which is most likely our case, is that your first wife is barren and you need another wife because you need lineage. You need someone who's going to take care of you in your old age. You need to just start getting those workers in the field. And so most likely what happens is that Elkanah and Hannah are married. She is unable to to have children, and so he marries someone else to help him out. So, but what we will come to see is the obvious. Polygamous relationships do not work. So we're going to dive into the scriptures, and we're going to see just how how underdog narrative our Hannah is. And we're going to start with... um, with a verse about their traditions. But we'll find that this family lives in Ramah and they travel to Shiloh, 15 miles away, to do sacrifices multiple times a year. Uh, At these sacrifices, they would give meat and the high priest would offer a sacrifice. This is Eli in our story. And then they would get a portion of the meat back and they would get to separate that amidst their family. Um, Depending on... Um, how many kids you had or what your status was in the family. You got more or less of that meat. Super weird. But this was a very, very prized moment because meat was a rarity on your dinner plate. Some of you might be like, how could that happen? How could I only eat meat three times a year? But this is what happens in their ancient culture is that they only have meat a few times a year. It's very important that you get your choice cut. So what we find in the next verse, it says that, and though Elkanah, loved Hannah he would only give her one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children so Elkanah loves his wife but he only gives her one choice portion one tri tip or whatever because she because it says the Lord had given her no children in other translations it will say things like the Lord closed her womb things like that And I wanna sit here for a tiny bit, just because it can feel really easy to gloss over that and be like, well, I don't know what that means. How could the Lord close up wombs? That feels uncomfortable, let's get away from it. Um, But actually this is a passage and this is a phrase that I wrestled with for years. What does it mean that the Lord closed up wombs? How does that fit with his character? And what I actually came to was the conclusion that this is actually incongruent with the Lord's character, right? the Lord's first command to his people is that they would be fruitful and multiply. If he wanted people to be fruitful and multiply, he shouldn't be closing up wombs. So that doesn't really make sense. And our God is very wise. So then what is a different explanation for this phrase? And I actually was thinking about just the the nature of human brokenness. Uh, Pastor Andrew preached on something like this when we were talking about Saul's torment of the evil spirit. It says that the Lord sent the evil spirit. So we kind of sat in that a little bit thinking, humans decided to divorce themselves from God's perfect plan of being in right communion, right relationship with him, where we trusted him and were obedient to him. So we divorced ourselves from that and entered in a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of brokenness. Some of that brokenness is health issues. Some of that's relationship issues. And for our story, I believe it's a fertility issue. It makes sense to me that fertility would be one of the ways that the enemy or the brokenness of our world would be attacked because if God's commanding us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with beautiful people who love his kingdom and want to bring it to this earth, let's attack that or whatever. So I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I do want to say that I believe that instead of the Lord actually actively closing someone's womb, he is letting humankind play out. He's letting out the human tradition play out. And because we allowed for brokenness... It's just the way the world is. It does not mean that the Lord doesn't want to open wombs or that he doesn't want to heal or that he doesn't want his kingdom to come. And so we'll see that later in the passage. But I just want to say that because that feels really uncomfortable to read that, to sit in that. And it might not even feel very good for me to say, well, God's kind of allowing it right now. That doesn't feel good. And that never felt good for me uh, in our season of bareness. But I do believe that um, we can pray into those kind of things and ask for the Lord to move into open wombs. So, wanted to say that before we moved on. So, here we come back to our first opposition of our underdog in verse 6. And it reads, So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears. It would not even eat. Obviously, this polygamous relationship is not working out. It is causing rivalry between the two wives, and at least one side is being tormented by the other side, right? It says that Peninnah is taunting her and making fun of her, ridiculing her, because year after year, she's going to the tabernacle, praying and hoping for the Lord to heal her, and it remains the same. I don't know if you've ever been ridiculed for holding on to a promise for the Lord. Um, it happens in little subversive ways. It happens in grand ways. But there are ways where the people of our, of our churches, of our world, of our culture, will try and tell us not to keep hoping for what God has put in us. And so each time it says that Hannah would be reduced to tears and she would not even eat. This is some awful torment. But of course an underdog doesn't just have one opposition, they have multiple battles that they have to come up against. And so we will see opposition number two. It reads, Elkanah says, why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask, why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? So my husband never, ever, ever did this. But I can tell you that what looks like maybe comfort to an outsider is extreme turmoil to the person who's receiving it. These, uh, these things may feel like comfort, but they actually are just trite, self-centered opposition from the person who's supposed to be caring for you. These why questions are all accusatory. It's like, why are you feeling this way? Can't you just stop it? Or whatever he wants to portray in that moment. And he finishes it with a, you have me. Aren't I better than 10 sons self-centered response? And I'm like, what? That's crazy. Okay, so we never encountered the why questions, my husband and I, but we had a lot of the at least phrases, which I think is our like sneaky way of kind of doing this in our culture, where people would say, well, at least you still get to sleep in at least you get to travel at least you don't have to deal with x y or z of parenting and it's like we would have given up any of the things that we had been doing in our life to have the kids we wanted to have we were traveling because life has to continue going on and I was doing ministry in those places so it's just an interesting way of how even with the best intentions the impact can still hurt even if we have the best intentions the impact can still be painful and this made me pause and wonder about uh, just the ways that we show up for people and thinking about the importance that showing up matters you got to show up for the friends you got to show up for the people in our in our communities we got to show up for our brothers and sisters in their painful seasons and how we show up matters If we show up with weird little pity party, like self-seeking trite phrases of comfort, like that's not super helpful. Showing up matters and how we show up matters. So even though Elkanah may have had the best intentions, his delivery was not great. And I think it leads her to even more pain because he could have asked her, how are you doing? What do you feel like the Lord has taught you in this season? Or how can I be partnering with you in prayer in this season? Instead of making her feel alone and isolated, he could have partnered alongside of her. So, Naturally, every underdog has to go to a moment where they have a, like, a discovery moment or a moment where they're like, no, I have to stay the course. And this is where we see Hannah stay the course. She prays and she turns to the Lord, the one who can actually comfort her, the one who can actually answer, and she prays this. Oh Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. That can feel a little strange from the outside, so I'm going to break down the vow a little bit. Um, she's giving a Nazaritic vow, which is a vow that her, her child, her son that she's praying for, would enter into the Lord's service as a Nazarite, which means he would not cut his hair, he would not drink, he would not do all sorts of things that would have been normal. He would have been further set apart as part of God's work. And normally a Nazaritic vow was short-term. It's like a little short-term missions trip. And at the end of it, you would cut your hair, right? Like Samson, he's a, he's a Nazarite. His hair gets cut. That's a whole different thing. And, um, and so what she's saying, though, is like, he will be yours for his entire lifetime. So what she's saying here is just knowing that my body can carry a child to term, just knowing that I could safely deliver him, I will give him back to you. That would be enough. That would be enough for me to know that my body does what it's supposed to do. And then I would give him back to you and entrust him to you in in a very, very, like, physical way that he would be a part of God's work. Now, I want to pause and reflect because this story of Hannah mirrors some of the other matriarchs in the Israelite scriptures, right? We have Sarah and we have uh, Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives and Abram's wife. And both of, all three of these stories have a barren wife. The first two, however, Sarah and Rachel, both get into this weird, like, fear cycle, fertility war thing that's really awkward. And they both offer their maidservants in a really, like, kind of oppressive way to their husbands, to which the husbands agree. So obviously they're not off the hook. Um, And they just kind of get into this fear cycle. Like, okay, well, the Lord's not going to provide, so I have to make a way somehow. It would be better if my husband had a child through someone else than us not having one at all, okay? But rate, or for, but Hannah stays steadfast. She goes year after year to the tabernacle to pray the same prayer, to hope in the same God, and to believe that she was going to carry a child and that her and Elkanah would have lineage. And... The thing that stuck out to me was that faithfulness may not always change our circumstances, but it changes and shapes our character. Faithfulness may not always change our circumstances, but it will change our character. And I don't say this to demean or to disregard the hope that we should place in God moving and God performing those miracles. I want those circumstances to change, and I want to pray and believe wholeheartedly that circumstances will change. But the inevitability, the thing that will for sure, for sure happen is that our character will be shaped. We will become more faithful. We will become more trustworthy. We will become more loyal. Our character gets shaped in seasons where we have to remain faithful. One of the other things that I learned about Hannah, I wanted to see how do other traditions speak about her? How do people talk about Hannah? I saw Saint Hannah, prophetess Hannah. I didn't grow up with any of those things. It was like Hannah, Samuel's mother. And that's fine. But as I was reading through these things, I noticed that in the Jewish tradition, they believe Hannah and use her as a model of the most sincere form of prayer. Her, out of all the people of scripture, is the model for sincerity of prayer. They have a word that's called kavanah, and it means direction, intention, or purpose. It's a way of setting your mind on the Lord and to intentionally have like a bodily experience and a spiritual experience instead of just resorting to mechanical action. So in some of our liturgical practices, we might have like a stand up, sit down, read this prayer. For a while, our church body was doing the Lord's Prayer for a season, And it could have been really easy to just have this mechanical response. Oh, Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? You could have just done it. But Kavanaugh would say, no, have intentionality. What you are saying matters. Who you're saying it to matters. And we need to have that sincerity of posture. This doesn't even just refer to prayer, Kavanaugh, but they actually let it kind of bleed over into these other areas of all of their other commandments. That if they happen to just walk by their synagogue and they hear the bell chime for an hour of prayer or whatever sort of like different traditions are happening and they hear it by accident, it doesn't actually count because it had no Kavanaugh, Like it has no sincerity. They didn't do it purposefully. And I was reading this and I was like, Hannah, you are showing us what it means to have a sincere and dedicated prayer life. But of course our underdog doesn't get seen as a prayerful, reverent woman. Instead we get to see the response of the high priest. And he says, As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, Eli thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? Put away oh, throw away your wine. Again, instead of Hannah being seen and being asked questions about what she's doing in this prayerful space, how is she encountering God? What is it that she's doing here? Eli attacks her and judges her as a drunk woman. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer season where someone thought you were drunk. This feels wild to me. And I kind of want to see my prayer life go up a notch just to see if it would happen. But there's something about this that she's not even drunk and he's accusing her. It's at this very moment of despair. It says again that she was crying so bitterly. She doesn't want to eat. And this is what she encounters. So when Eli learns of her intentions, he responds again and he says, in that case, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition. I'm not sure if this was like the most sincere response of Eli. I want to believe that he still is like, okay, I need to like fix this. He's the, actually the only person that tries to fix this situation. Elkanah and Peninnah clearly are not doing anything helpful. Eli at least is like, may the Lord grant your petition. So what happens with Hannah. She goes home, she sleeps with her husband, and she gets pregnant. So it's every like underdog scenario, like the crescendo, the moment of victory. It says in verse 19, the Lord remembered her plea. This word remember has been very important um, because it refers not to a forgetful God who suddenly is like, oh, I've got a kid over there. They're in pain. Maybe I should go do something about that. It's actually a very active response. And it's about a God who moves to rescue his children in pain. There's this scholar who writes in the the Bible, remembering, particularly on the part of God, is not the retention or recollection of a mental image, but a focusing upon the object of memory that results in action. We have a God who wants to act on our behalf, We are always in the mind of our Heavenly Father. He has never forgotten his children. And so here's a pastoral word I want to give because we might get tempted to read stories like Hannah or Rachel or Sarah. These are stories that came to mind for me where we want to make a formula or some sort of like system of if I do this and 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 this happens, then maybe I'll get the exact same thing. Maybe I'll get to see God move in the exact same way. How do I get God to do that for me? But what I want to say is that God may not show up in the exact same way. We have a very creative God. In fact, if you look at Jesus's ministry, you will see that he didn't always heal the same way all the time. Not in every circumstance with eyesight did he make mud out of his own spit. He only did that the one time. So let's not just use that every time we pray for someone's blindness, right? There's something about his creativity, his intentionality, the way that he wants to partner with his people. And as we were in our season of barrenness, I kept hearing from like my husband, my mother-in-law, my mom, like different people around me that they had words or dreams or visions about our kids that they were so sure that it was going to happen. But God didn't always show up for me that way. In fact, there were very few like concrete dreams or visions of our kids before we had our child. But what God kept saying over and over and over again was, "'My promise is my presence.'" I promise to be with you. I'm not give you the same dreams or visions that I'm giving other people around you, but my promise is my presence. And that is a promise I want to speak over all of us because that is something we can take to the bank in cash. His presence is always with us and it will go with you to the ends of the earth. It says, I will be with you to the ends of time. So we're going to get back to Hannah. We're going to land this plane. We're going to celebrate. Because what happens with Hannah She indeed has a son named Samuel, and she gives him to Eli, and she honors her her vow. It's actually kind of wild that she gets to make the vow. Her husband has to uphold it, right? This is her husband's first child with her. You would think you want to hold on to it, but he has to honor his wife's vow, which I love. And so she's transitioning to motherhood. It says every year she would go visit Samuel. She would make him a little coat that was a little bit bigger for his next year of life. It says that um, chapter two finishes with this just beautiful poem of Hannah that, where she's just crying out and declaring who the Lord is. It says, now I can tell my enemies who God is. Now I can for sure know that God is my fortress and my rock. There's all these beautiful declar- declarations of who the Lord is to Hannah now. So I encourage you to go and read that. Um, But it also finishes with a prophetic word. And this is why Hannah is considered a prophetess. It's because at the end of her song, she says, he gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. So even in the midst of a land where there are no judges, or there's no king yet, she is prophesying that there will be a king in Israel. Not only that, there will be an anointed king So she is prophesying the coming of our Messiah. And I never grew up knowing that about Hannah. So I was just like, let's go, Hannah. She is prophesying and that is beautiful. Uh, Does Hannah just have Samuel? No, the Lord is abundant and generous. And she goes on to have five more kids, three sons and two daughters. So she has her hands full now and that's beautiful. And I love that though Hannah was taunted for her barrenness, she will be remembered for her faithfulness. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, every year they celebrate their new year in September and they will start their celebration in a way of remembrance of God's faithfulness. And so they will always start their new year with a reading of God ending Sarah's barrenness and Hannah's barrenness. That is how they start their new year. They say, How can we remember the God of our people and the way that he rescued us from things? How he rescued our matriarchs from infertility and barrenness? They are people of remembrance, and I want us to be people of remembrance. So, as we close, I want us to think about a few questions. I think about this beautiful prayer life, and I wonder do you need to renew or even begin this kind of prayer life? I don't think you're going to go zero to people think you're drunk, but I think that people will want to be around you as we become more sincere people of prayer. That prayer changes things and it changes us. So is there a way that we need to become people of prayer, of sincerity, of faith? Do we need to renew that or begin that today? And then is there someone in your life that is walking in pain that you need to show up for? Are there people around you that maybe you're too afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing or that what you want to say may not be well-received? Can we show up and can we show up in a helpful way? Can we err on the side of just showing up and not saying anything? Who knows? Like showing up matters and how we show up matters. And so can we show up for our friends? Can we show up for our brothers and sisters? Can we show up for our community? And then this morning I added a bonus one because I was just thinking about just the song that Hannah sings And I wonder, are there things that the Lord has asked us to remember that maybe we have forgotten? And even thinking in communion this morning, I was like, I wonder if that remember is similar. Like when we remember communion, it's supposed to cause us to act, to bring us to an action of worship, of service, of whatever it is. But is there a way that like when we think about the Lord, we're supposed to act upon that? So I wonder if there are ways that we need to be people of remembering people who, who honor one another. So I want us to think about those, those questions. I'm going to pray for us right now. And if you are walking in a season where you are just coming up against thing after thing, opposition after opposition, barrier after barrier, if there is a way that you would like to receive a blessing this morning, I invite you to put your hands out in front of you. And I'm just going to pray over us. And then I'm going to invite Sue up so that we can start our child dedications. So Lord, thank you for being a present God. Thank you that we never have to wonder really where you are at because you are always with us. I pray that any person that feels like they don't know where you're at right now or they're unsure if you are looking out for them or if you remember them, Jesus, that you would be with them right now in their living rooms, in the car, in this congregation, in this home this morning. uh, Would you remind us of your presence? Would you remind us of of your just safe presence, Lord, that you are a good comforter? And when the people around us fail, that you will always come through. You are a good comforter. Lord, I pray for strongholds to be broken, for chains to be broken, Lord, that if there's any barriers that are coming up because the enemy is trying to stop your move and stop your people, Lord, that those would be broken in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would remain faithful people, that we would trust that it is good for our character, but it's good for our communities, and that we always pray with faithfulness that you are gonna show up, Lord. Teach us to hope over and over and over again, Lord. And may you be the God who speaks to us. Bless each person here in this place, those who are watching. Uh, May you just be a good and faithful God to us all. We long to remember you as you remember us. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.